Good morning, and welcome to everyone, especially our visitors. I'd like to open this morning with a short message on the kingship of Jesus. Uh, let's pray before we start. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to meet together with your people. We pray for your presence here. We pray that your word would speak, that you'd touch every heart here this morning with your word and give understanding. <clears throat> be with us here in our meeting and may your grace be here with us in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so I thought, uh, I thought it'd be really fitting here between uh, Ascension Day and our Pentecost message to talk about this subject, Jesus the King. And hopefully you'll see throughout, uh, as we continue here, why, uh, why I think that's, uh, that the time for that is now. Um, the topic has been on my mind uh, partly due to a question that we had at, uh, at the Brothers Morning Meeting this past week. And the question that someone asked is, uh, how do we introduce someone to the kingdom gospel in only a short conversation throughout the day at work or, or wherever? How do, we, how do we communicate the full gospel truth in just a short conversation? Uh, because we live in a, in a place where most people are already so over-familiar with I'll say a gospel, uh, some kind of a gospel. And how do we communicate that there's more to the gospel than, say, saying a prayer that invites Jesus to be our personal Savior and then continuing with our lives as if nothing was changed? How do we show that the gospel message is actually really about joining a kingdom? And we'll talk more about that word in a, in a bit here. But it's joining the kingdom of Jesus. How do, how do we show that? Um, that was a question that, that kind of got me thinking along this topic. And I won't try to lay out a specific answer to that question this morning, but I believe it's, it's very important that each of us works through these questions and questions like this so that we're always ready to share this hope when the opportunity comes up, to share the full gospel of the kingdom. As Jesus called it, he, many, many times when he spoke of the gospel, he called it the gospel of the kingdom. Um, so, and also to share why this gospel that you live is the full gospel. How you should, we should be always be ready to show people that when we encounter them at work or wherever we meet people. So I think it's really important to think through this subject. Um, but again, I won't be trying to lay out a specific answer to it. Rather, I'd like to just help us think about this question. And so to do that, I'd like to take a subject this morning, which is so central to the kingdom gospel, but it's nearly absent in today's mainstream Christianity, and that's the kingship of Jesus. I believe this uh, omission or this exclusion of the kingship of Jesus in, in mainstream Christianity today is one of the biggest reasons why we see such confusion and misinterpretations of the gospel message 
and why we see so many people naming the name of Christ, but so few followers of Christ. The gospel to so many is that Jesus died for your sins and you must accept him as your savior and believe that he did that for you and then you'll be saved. And of course there's obvious truth to part of this message, but it's not only incomplete. It also, it, it, I'm hoping to show this morning that it also skews the story of the gospel to be mainly about ourselves and about our salvation. Uh, Brother John D. Martin talks about it quite a bit. He calls it the Save Me Gospel, a gospel that's about saving me. And uh, hopefully this morning you'll be able to see a little bit of, um, of how the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached is different. But if we look at the story of the whole Bible, story of the whole Bible, we'll find that the story of the gospel has in fact always been about God and his desire for a kingdom, a people that obey and glorify him. I believe God created the world with that desire. And then if farther on, he called Abraham. But why did he call Abraham? He called Abraham so that with Abraham's seed, he could make that desire for a people, a kingdom come true. Um, and that became the kingdom of Israel, of course. And he told the Israelites that that's what he desires of them. When they left Egypt, he told them, I want to be your God and king and you'll be my people. And again, he, he told them when they cried out in the book of Judges, when they cried out for a king like the other nations had, he told them, I want to be your king. I want to be that guy, not, not some earthly king. And when Israel failed to fulfill that desire for him again and again, he said through the prophets, he said, a time is coming when this will work out. It'll, it'll happen. We're actually, I'll have a people. And then he told the prophets again and again, a time is coming when there's going to be a people and I'm really going to be their God and King and they're really going to be my people. That's, uh, he keeps saying that again and again throughout the prophets. I will be their God. They will be my people. It's going to work out. I'm going to make it happen. So I believe that when we're sharing the gospel, this, this correction, if you will, is one that we need to help others understand. If the understanding that Jesus is reigning as king today and is looking for a people that obey and glorify him today, if that's missing from the gospel message, then it's little wonder that we see so many claiming the salvation of Jesus, but so few who actually obey Jesus. Um, so to begin, I'd like to take a look at how the kingship of Jesus is portrayed in the Bible. Uh, the first passage I want to look at is Acts 2.22. Acts 2.22. So here Peter is uh, preaching to the crowd at Pentecost. Uh, fitting time to break in here. Um, and he's laying out the gospel message. Um, it's Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came down and the people thought that these guys are crazy. We don't know what they're doing. But then Peter said, no, it's not what you think. Here's what's going on. And he lays out the gospel for them. And starting in verse 22. And we'll jump here a little bit. You'll see. 
Verse 22, uh, Peter's talking, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God had raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David, oh, okay, we're going to jump here now. He continues on and he talks about, um, he talks about David uh, and his prophecy here. We're going to break in at verse 32 now. This Jesus had God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he had, shed forth for, he had shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended unto the heavens, but he himself saith, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God had made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. So we see here the main points of the gospel that Peter preached and laid out for these people. Jesus was crucified. Then he was witnessed as raised from the dead by God. He was exalted to the right hand of God and made both Lord and Christ. And notice here at the end, Peter says that Jesus was made both Lord and Christ. These are titles that God bestows on Jesus when he's exalted to the right hand of God, when he's ascended, God gives these titles to Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And we've gotten so accustomed to these words that often, if you're like me, we don't really take notice of them. Um, you'll find throughout the New Testament, the apostles named Jesus with these titles, the Lord Jesus, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one I'd like to focus on this morning is Christ. The word Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And the Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one. The picture that that word gives is one of the Old Testament Israelite kings being anointed with oil, the anointed one. It signified the divine election of God. This is the king that God has chosen, the anointed one. He's going to be the ultimate king over his people. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah which means an anointed one. In other words, they were waiting for a promised king. A king in the line of King David, whose kingdom and reign was prophesied, prophesied to be never-ending. When we hear the word Messiah, many of us may think more along the lines of a savior. And while, of course, that's also true of Jesus, uh, the title Messiah, or Christ in Greek, is a title of kingship. So Peter says Jesus is exalted to God, and then God makes him Christ, or king. This is the anointed king. When he ascends to God, God makes him king. This is King Jesus, which the disciples call, the apostles call repeatedly Jesus Christ. It's a title of kingship. Uh, next, I'd like to go ahead to Luke 19. In Luke 19, verse 11. Luke 19, verse 11. This is a parable that Jesus tells his disciples. Uh, I think we're all familiar with it. 
We're not going to read all of it. Um, 11 through 15. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a, a certain nobleman went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him, saying, We will not have this man to rule over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Now, like I said, it's not the end of the parable, but I don't want to read all the way through this one. I trust that we've all heard it before. What I want to focus on is this nobleman that it tells about. We know that Jesus is telling this story about himself. He's this nobleman. Um, now, look at what he says this nobleman is doing. It says he's going to a far country to get for himself a kingdom and then to return. Now, like so many other terms, like we mentioned earlier with the word Christ, kingdom is another term which we seem to not fully consider its meaning. Um, at least I don't always with a lot of these terms. But a kingdom is literally, a, a, when we think about it, it's rather obvious. But it's a place or a people or a nation ruled by a king, a kingdom. And so when we hear Jesus say the kingdom of God or the gospel of the kingdom, um, it seems like we so often get over familiar with these terms and we forget to stop and consider what's really being said. So Jesus says he's going to go away to be crowned king. It's not that he's going to be crowned king when he returns or while he's there on earth. He's going to be crowned king in the far country. Jesus then continues and says that some of the citizens in that land where he comes from will say, we don't want you to be our king. But he's going to receive the kingdom all the same. He's going to that far country, which we know is um, ascending to heaven, and he's going to receive that kingdom. And now notice this. In the very last verse of the parable that we didn't read, verse 27, he says this, But those my enemies, the guys who said we don't want you to be our king, which would not that I should rule over them, bring hither and slay them before me. That's the end of the parable. Notice that it's not that they should have accepted him as king when he returned. When he returns, they say, yeah, okay, fine, you're king, we'll accept you. Rather, it's those who up till that point have not accepted his reign over them will be slaughtered before him. It's pretty harsh, pretty harsh words. So we see Jesus portrayed, portraying the faithful servants in this parable, as those who accept his, him as the reigning king over them today. Right now, he's going to the Father to get a kingdom, and then those servants who during that time accept his reign, those are the faithful servants, as he says. And th when he comes back, those who did not want him to be king, up till that point, those are the ones, he says, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Next, um, 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like to look at this one quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start at verse 1. Uh, this is Paul laying out the gospel. He says, as it was given to me. 
1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, and then all of the apostles. And last of all, he was seen also of me, as one born out of due time. And uh, I read this account. Oh, um, He goes on to speak on the importance of the resurrection, but we'll continue in verse 22 now. Um, 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming, then cometh the end. When he, Christ, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So Paul says that Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Um, I hope you can see here how backwards this idea is that is pretty prevalent today, that Jesus will not reign until the very end. Rather, Paul says that this is the very time that Jesus must reign. And at the end, when all of his enemies have been conquered, he will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Um, just wanted to point that one out quickly. Next, I'd like to go to Acts 1. And then later to Daniel from this one. Acts 1 is the story of the ascension that we looked at, I believe it was last week. Acts 1 verse 9. We read the account of the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And when he had spoke these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfast toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. And I read this account to point out one detail in verse 9 that I believe the author of Acts included for a specific purpose. Um, he writes that, a cloud received him out of their sight. Now keep in mind the passages that we've just gone over showing that Jesus is made king when he returns to the Father in heaven. And I'd like to go now to Daniel 7, 13. Um, we're going to read a prophecy here. Daniel 7, 13. It's a vision of the prophet Daniel. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory 
and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So Daniel sees, quote, one like the, the son of man. This is a term that we know that Jesus liked to use for himself. I think probably in part uh, to allude to this passage. Um, Jesus knew this passage and the prophecies. And I think maybe he called himself that to allude to this passage, um, at least in part. And he, he sees him, Daniel says he sees him coming on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the clouds of heaven. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking, oh yeah, coming on the clouds of heaven. This is Jesus coming back to earth. Um, but that's not at all what's going on here. And I don't know how I missed this until very recently. I read this passage and I was like, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is not coming back to earth on the clouds of heaven. It says he's coming on the clouds of heaven and he's approaching the earth. No, he's approaching the ancient of days, God, and they bring him near before him. So this isn't Jesus returning at all. This is Jesus ascending to heaven. He's approaching the ancient of days, coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching the ancient of days. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. God crowns Jesus king, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. Uh, I just have two more quick passages on this. You don't have to turn them, to them with me. Ephesians 1.22 alludes to this as well. Writing about Jesus' resurrection and ascension, Paul says, God the Father put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And then uh, in 1 Peter 3, 22, now that he has gone into heaven, so once Jesus has gone into heaven, 1 Peter says, now that he's gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now that he's gone to heaven, he's got all these things subject to him. Um, I believe that alludes to Jesus being king over all these. So hopefully from these scriptures, uh, we can see that Jesus really is crowned king today and that the gospel story is really about Jesus receiving this long-awaited kingdom that he's been waiting for since the beginning of time, since the beginning of um, the earth at least. Jesus came, yes, of course, to die on the cross for us. Yes, to break the power of sin and death. All of that is absolutely true. No doubt, but the real climax of the story is not that. It's that he ascended to heaven to receive from the Father his kingdom of people that he's been waiting for since the world began. A kingdom of people who finally will have the power to do as he taught us, to obey his commandments. So, what's our response then? If that's the gospel story. If the gospel is about Jesus breaking the power of sin and then being crowned king over a kingdom, what's our response? What's the response of a subject in a kingdom, in a nation, to his king? What is expected of someone who, especially in the time of ruling monarchs and kings, leaves one nation to join another? What, what would you expect of someone like that? Our response can be nothing less than giving our full, unbound allegiance to that king. And what does that look like? 
I think it's this person cannot remain tied at all to the nation where he came from. He must be loyal to this new king and him alone. He must be obedient to the laws and commands of his new king. Can you see how contrasting the implications of the gospel of the kingdom is to today's save me Christianity? Rather than simply claiming the salvation of Jesus while living as you please, the citizen who wants to join Jesus' kingdom has to prove himself a faithful servant as in Jesus' parable in Luke 19. He must show himself a faithful servant. That word faithful, uh, a few weeks ago Brother Richard had a message on what is faith. And this is one area where we can really see the implications of uh, omitting or excluding the kingship of Jesus from the gospel. With either only briefly mentioning or completely leaving out the kingship of Jesus, faith, the word faith, loses so much of its otherwise obvious meaning. It easily becomes degraded to simply a mental affirmation or a strongly held belief. If Christ is not shown to be an actively reigning king, and if the full gospel is simply that Jesus died to take away my sins, then it's a little wonder that faith to so many Christians becomes just a mental state of believing really strongly that Jesus existed on the earth and died for me. But if the gospel is really all about Jesus breaking the power of sin, then being crowned king, then what does faithfulness look like? Being faithful, or literally full of faith, faithful, suddenly means so much more. Being faithful then becomes serving, um, being loyal and obedient to the laws and commandments of that king, giving undivided allegiance to the reigning king who has conquered the power of sin and death for us. And then, of course, also, if you're in that state, you'll also excitedly call others to join that kingdom. If you're in a land that's not so great, and you come into this other nation or land or kingdom that is so great and that's freed you from so much and where the king is so awesome, what will you do? Probably you'll be calling your friends and saying, let's leave this nation, let's join this kingdom. This kingdom is so much better. And uh, so I think that's an obvious interpretation of faith once we see the gospel in that way. So my hope is that we can use these thoughts of the kingship of Jesus to better understand how to discuss the kingdom gospel with others and to call them to also have a full allegiance to King Jesus. So thank you for listening.